Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Welcome to One Step Beyond, a show that encourages you to take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. My name is Tony Fletcher. In the default world, I write about, broadcast about, and occasionally play music. In this podcast world, I indulge my love of outdoor activities and travel of my personal belief that the world is a better place for us engaging in both of these if we can, and a general understanding that we only live once, so we'd better take those steps outside our comfort zones while we have the opportunity. For episode 11, I'm taking a break from the long-distance, high-tech but lo-fi audio Zoom interviews that have formed the basis of the last few shows. Indeed, formed the basis of most podcasts during this COVID-restricted era. Instead, I'm getting back to the origins of One Step Beyond, when I took my trusty Zoom mobile recorder. Yes, there are two companies with the same name, and it gets really confusing around this show, and recorded a documentary about our group climb of Mount Kilimanjaro last summer. I was inspired to make this episode a field recording, in large part because I read, just last week, that even pre-pandemic, Americans and Europeans alike spend 90% of their time indoors. And that's simply not healthy. So, if this show is here to encourage you to get outdoors, then it stands to reason that I should be recording at least a large part of it outdoors. So, on the last Friday of August, I took an hour's drive north to the sand dunes of the Albany Pine Bush Preserve. There, I met up with Bill Hoffman, who took a similar drive south to meet me halfway. Hey Bill. Hey. How are you? Good. Beautiful morning for a run. Yep. Barely 10 years ago, Bill Hoffman was just another busy, middle-aged, married, 40-something father, carrying an extra 40 pounds of weight around his midriff. He hadn't run since high school, had barely engaged in any other athletic activity during those 25 years either. Then he took more than a step outside of his comfort zone. He took a step outside his shoes as well. I have just been listening to an interview with Barefoot Ted recorded just this May. Of course. On the drive up. Uh, He's quite the character. He does not stop talking, does he? No, he doesn't. He's like that. (laughs) I've I've seen him at Leadville twice. Right. And he's more barefoot Ted than than he's depicted in the book. (laughs) The book is Born to Run. Barefoot Ted, as you may have surmised, is one of the prime characters in the book. These days, Barefoot Ted makes sandals. Bill Hoffman, when not barefoot himself, runs in these sandals. And by running, I mean everything from his Monday mile to the feared and revered Leadville 100. And today, I'm going to run in these sandals too. Along the way, Bill is going to talk about why shoes are no good for you. So wherever this finds you, however this finds you, kick back, and I guess kick off those shoes while you're at it, and prepare to go. One step! 
So did he handcraft these uh, sandals you're wearing? Um, he made them, yeah. I mean, they're from his uh, factory. I'm not sure how handcrafted they are these days. but Yeah, uh, he was saying they, they, they still are. And to pronounce them correctly, soon as I've been taking some Spanish lessons, shall I go first? Sure. Sorachi? Yes. Those Spanish lessons are paying off. Scrap that. I have a horrible feeling that, despite my best intentions, I pronounce the H at the start of that word when everyone knows that the H in Spanish is always silent. And that includes the Spanish spoken in Mexico. Which brings us back to the book Born to Run. And no, I'm not talking about Bruce Springsteen's superb recent autobiography, justifiably named after his own epic breakthrough song of the 1970s, but a book that preceded it, published in 2009, and written by sports journalist Christopher McDougall, Born to Run was an instant bestseller, immediately influential, and well-deserved if you ask me. I was in awe of McDougall's ability to weave not just the multiple narratives of his subtitle, A Hidden Tribe, Super Athletes, and The Greatest Race the World Has Never Seen, but to offer along the way a plausible explanation for Homo sapiens' rise to dominance, the means by which we succeeded, where the Neanderthals failed. And that reason is that we are natural runners. Over the course of the book, McDougall castigated the shoe companies whose endless efforts to sell us greater cushioning and comfort only makes us more prone to injury. As he did the doctors who look at those injuries and tell us we shouldn't be running in the first place. Look, argues McDougall, the Tarumara Indians of Mexico's Copper Canyons the quote hidden tribe of his subtitle, run tens of miles a day for fun, men, women and children together, with little more than a piece of rubber under their feet and a lace across the top. These are the Waraches, to hopefully pronounce it better, and Barefoot Ted, who earned his nickname for being first a convert to, and subsequently an evangelist for shoeless perambulation, had one of them made for him while he was visiting the Tarumara to compete in the race through the Copper Canyons, that forms the main contemporary narrative of Born to Run. The specific Tarahumara who made Barefoot Ted his sandal goes by the name of Manuel Luna, one of the top runners in the canyons, and there's a photograph in Born to Run that captures that moment when Luna is carving out Ted's sandal on the roadside from a piece of rubber bought from a local tyre store of all places. Inspired, Barefoot Ted took that design back to the States and started Lunar Sandals, named for the Indian who showed him the way. The person who took that photograph, by the way, is Louis Escobar, himself a champion ultramarathoner and the host of the Road Dog podcast that I was listening to as I drove up to meet Bill. You and I have done a bunch of, yeah, we've seen each other out on the trails a number of times, but I specifically remember the one year I did the whole of Manitou's as opposed to relay or volunteering, seeing you early on setting off on the 54 miles wearing just these, which are basically, yeah, a bit of rubber under your feet and uh, some, some lacing through, through your big toe and your, your index toe, I guess. And you covered all 54 miles with a smile on your face and you finished an hour ahead of me. So you obviously getting think, something right. I think that's where we met. Is that I the first we time were we in met? The, we were the first time we met. I think we were in the same starting corral. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about running, and and then uh, I think uh, it was the first. Was that the first time I had done Manitou's? It might have been. 
2017, would that be it? We're talking here about Manitou's Revenge, a 54-mile race through the Catskill Mountains, or rather over the Catskill Mountains, that features probably the gnarliest terrain on the whole of the East Coast. I still remember seeing Bill that day. When you're running trails, you spend a lot of time looking at the ground, and it's pretty hard to miss someone who's not wearing shoes. I kind of look at myself like a... You ever heard that there's like an advertising thing, like the, the purple cow? <laughs> so it's it's some guy, he does TED Talks and stuff like that, and he's got an, a marketing book called The Purple Cow. He's like, you want to be the purple cow. Like if you're, if you're driving along the road and you see cows, no one says anything. But if you see a purple cow, everybody's going to stop and look at the purple cow. Right. So when I go running and I go to a race, I stand out because I'm wearing the sandals. I have also been the purple cow at times. Because McDougall writes not just about the Warachis and barefoot running, but about the Vibram Five Fingers, which you may know as the rubber toe gloves. Now I'm far from the only person to have adopted them as a result of McDougall's book, but I was surprised to see, at the time, I was the only convert in my running group. As I got faster in them, because I did, people referred to them as my magic gloves. I was definitely a focal point. While I don't wear my Vibrams, or Vibrams, pronounce it as you will, this is not a Spanish lesson, for all my running, my preference for minimal, meaning low to the ground, zero drop shoes, has remained intact. I'm wearing, I should say, I'm wearing right now my ultra solstices, which are pretty minimal. I really, I run minimal, and that's uh, something we can talk about, but I don't do a ton of barefoot, and I've yet to run in the lunar sandals and these lunar sandals uh i am a 10.5 but you brought me a spare pair so that we can i uh, can try them out today and they are what size are these i think these are nine and a halves okay pull that strap up around your heel there you go they feel how's that feel feels just fine so even though it's a nine and a half yeah i think that looks just perfect almost perfect being just a little below my regular size it was perhaps no surprise that one of my feet extended to the very, very edge of the sandal itself. A non-runner's instinct would be, oh my God, my right toe is unprotected. I'm going to stub this toe. <laughs> yeah, that's... yeah, but you're going to, uh, I mean, it's not really protected anyways. So. And it's about yeah. lifting your feet. Yeah, it's about keeping your feet, you know, from, from the rocks. Right. And, and, the, and being uh, mindful while right. you're running. I mean, the mindfulness is... Is, is absolutely key and I'm always reading so yeah I was doing a bit more research on this and I was just reading people with their uh, I was looking at your video actually your TED talk yeah. and the people who say yeah I'd like to barefoot run but but the broken glass but this but that and um, I, yeah, I've done my share of going barefoot and and it's like yeah but you should be looking at, you should be looking where you're going anyway I mean yeah we've got this great uh, you know visual perceptual system that you know Computers still can't master uh, everything we do, and it's really good at avoiding weird obstacles and things like that. And your foot's actually a lot tougher than you think. I think uh, Barefoot Ken Bob made this crazy video where he basically takes a balloon and he tries to like mash it into like um, broken glass and sharp rocks and things like that, and it, it's really hard to pop it. And I think your your foot's a lot like that. It's very moldable. I mean, I've run four full marathons barefoot um i don't think i've ever gotten a piece of glass on my foot from running one um 
you know, occasionally did... you might get a thorn or something like that, but that, you know, it's just not that big a deal. Bill and I tested my fit by jogging around the car park. So how do they feel? They feel just fine. They feel just fine. And I think one of the things I liked of them over the uh, five fingers was that they're, your foot's out there and it's very cool. So it's uh, really nice for that. And you're also just really easy to put on. I mean, you slide your toe in there, you pull the heel strap up, and you're ready to head out the door. You know, there's no socks, there's no tying laces, there's no trying to cram your foot into a sock-like or a glove-like shoe, which is one thing I really disliked about the Five Fingers is they were really hard to put on. <laughs> hey, Bill can talk about his Vibrams in the past tense. Mine are still very much in the present. And this has less to do with running than everyday uses. Like when I need to be on my feet. Pre-COVID, if I was going down to New York City, for example, and pounding the pavement, those days I would expect to be at art galleries or museums. The days in London when I'm trekking around town seeing friends. But still, Bill's right. They can be a pain to put on, especially if you use the toe glove socks underneath them. On which subject, Bill does occasionally deign to protect his feet from the elements, somewhat. I've got a, you know, pictures of me up on top of Whiteface Mountain with uh, wool socks, Luna sandals, and micro spikes. With uh, like, I think it was like 70 below wind chill on the top of that mountain that day. It's easy to feel defined by our footwear. Shoes are often the first thing we're encouraged to look at when we meet someone. This is partly why shoes, dress shoes in particular, can cost hundreds of dollars or euros or whatever your currency is. Why some companies have had strict office protocols about what you must wear at work on your feet. When did you last see a lawyer litigating in court barefoot, for example, as opposed to an expensive pair of leather shoes? The idea of just doing away with them is anathema for a lot of people. So I had to ask Bill the multi-million dollar industry's question. Why should we be going barefoot or as close as? Why shouldn't we take advantage of everything that science and technology has given us and wear good protective shoes? I'm not sure there's science behind good protective shoes. I think that's the first... Uh, fallacy I'd say in that line of reasoning I mean uh, I think the uh, shoe companies you know wanted to sell shoes I mean if you go back into the 70s all the shoes were flat um, I guess maybe because we didn't have the materials but then we went into these big thick squishy shoes with little or no research on what that actually did to people's running I think some more stuff has been done now, and you've got, you know, the, the super shoes that they're using now to break two-hour marathons. Um, but I think for general, general people, I mean, we evolved to go long distances barefoot. We didn't have shoes. Maybe we had a pair of sandals like this. Um, you know, that was sort of the first vehicle created by man was the simple sandal. And it allowed you to go further than you could barefoot. A little bit of protection, but not really messing with the basic mechanics. I mean, you don't see dogs or deer or anything else wearing shoes. Why should people have to wear shoes? Why are we sort of 
born broken. And maybe we aren't. Well, my question was consciously devil's advocate, but if you take your line of reasoning further, I'm going to continue to play devil's advocate, then why aren't we all still naked? Why do we bother with cars and houses and heating and indeed computers and all that kind of good stuff? I mean, the devil's advocate argument would be science, technology, capitalism, industry has given us all these great things. Surely, surely good protective footwear is a part of that. You know, we're not, all, we're not still living in caves. Sure. And so you would respond. Bill responded by drawing on the analogy of something else we've gotten very, very used to in the modern era. Chairs are great. They're made out of awesome materials. But it's not going to make you healthier if you sit in a chair all day. It's probably going to make you sick. I mean, if you look at the rates of obesity and heart disease, and a lot of those, you know, I like to eat. I like to eat food. Everybody likes to eat food. And we have just an incredible uh, access to calories. And what do we do with it? We eat too much of it, and it makes us sick. Um, So going back to a more minimalist I mean, I'm not saying we should all go live in caves, but I'm saying when I go run through the woods or the mountains all day, I feel great. I mean, I feel connected to my surroundings. Like right now, we're running down a really beautiful trail. There's, you know, it's kind of a wide trail, some trees and green on the right. And I'd much rather be here than sitting at a desk or in a fancy car. Me too. And having this, uh, you know, for me, this is the first time in running with open sounds. I've done lots of this in Vibrands. I've done a fair amount of road and track barefoot, not anywhere close to you, but some enough to appreciate it. I guess the number one reason for trying to get out of out of shoes that the companies will tell you offer you protection and cushioning and pace and comfort and all of that is that our feet are incredible tools that are capable of interacting with the ground beneath us at an incredibly fast rate. And they know what they're doing if you trust them. Exactly. I mean, I think the first time I ran Leadville, I hate to go back to a a ridiculous uh, endurance example, but about... 80 miles in, and I was actually running down a trail a little more technical than this, and closing my eyes and, like, actually falling asleep, I think, while I was running. Yeah, I've heard about that happening, yep. Yeah, I didn't trip once. My feet sort of just navigated the the terrain, and I think if you overthink it, if you're sort of looking at the ground and... I mean, you want to generally look ahead, but even then you're going to hit surprising things. And your feet should be able to adapt to it, and they can if you let them. Well, the feet are by far and away the most complicated parts of our, you know, of our bodies in the sense of the number of bones, muscles, tendons. It's phenomenal. Hey, I will look it up, but it's, the bones is in the 30s, I believe. Well, it's 26, but who's counting? Uh... It is an incredibly complex 
piece of equipment we were given. And it would be hard to think that even all the resources that Nike and Adidas has to offer can quite replicate the millions of years of, of uh, you know, Darwinism, if you want to call it that, that have allowed us. And the nerves. And the I mean, nerves. That's why your feet are so ticklish. And they use them for torture. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've got an incredible amount of nerves there. What are they there for? And you're essentially muffling them. It's kind of like sticking uh, earplugs in and trying to listen to classical music. Something else that was really brought to public attention by Born to Run is that the heavily cushioned running and walking shoes with the large heel drop that so many of us have chosen to wear over the years for comfort, myself absolutely included, encourage us to land on our heels, which is devastating for the impact of our body, sending shockwaves all the way back through the spine. We're much better off landing on the midfoot or even further forward. And one of the things about zero drop footwear of any kind, and that includes our bare feet, is that we're encouraged to do so naturally. To the extent that I do barefoot running, and I'm hoping this will inspire me to do a hell of a lot more, uh, I see it as just a really important part of teaching your feet, well not teaching your feet, your feet will teach you in a way, the natural running and the natural form and the natural pose. So that if I do feel the need to then put on, you know, which very minimal zero drop shoes or Vibrams, my feet will hopefully continue running in that form. They'll have been trained from doing some barefoot running to know that that's the form you want to have. Uh, yeah, certainly. When I started running, if something would start hurting a little bit or whatever, wearing uh, the Bibrams or the sandals, my go-to thing was just go out for a three or four mile barefoot run and try to remember what I was doing the next time I got in the you know, with some covering on my foot. Right. To try to retrain. Right. You can't really cheat when you're just barefoot. That's exactly true. But I gotta tell you, it feels like just initially it feels very free. Um I mean it's a nice temperature day, so my feet are happy to be un unshod. I've basically got like a little bit of rubber underneath them as a sandal. Uh Essentially, I remember the first time I tried them, it sort of felt like someone had paved my trails with Vibram rubber. So you're <laughs> sort of bringing along a little bit of pavement with you, but you're running barefoot. That's a very interesting way of putting it. Uh, so when, you know, this seems manageable. We're just on some sort of like sandy steps right now. When you were doing the escarpment, and you've done Leadville, and you've got these other things you can tell me about. How do you deal with everything from the slippery green boulders to the certain parts, certainly, of the Catskills involve actual climbing? Uh, and there are parts that can be genuinely precarious. So most people would balk at the idea of wearing something this simple to navigate a terrain that difficult. Well, I think uh, it's not that much different than wearing shoes. Um, it may look scary, but 
you can still stub your toes and break your toes with shoes. Um, it gives you a little bit more awareness. I think it gives you a good ground feel. And also because there's no, it's just a flat piece, you're probably at less of a risk of twisting an ankle because there's no platform to give yourself a little more leverage to twist your ankle. As we ran, Bill shared with me his personal story. It's surely not a completely uncommon one. At least not for the first part of it. It starts in high school where I took a, a gym class over the summer so that I could get out earlier in the fall. Because um, it was down in Florida and in previous years they allowed the gym class to go to the beach and do boogie boarding and fun stuff like that. But by the time I got there, the school had lawyered up and figured that the ocean was way too dangerous for these kids. So they turned us over to the football coach and he had us run around the track in the hot Florida sun all summer long. About two weeks into that, I got acute Achilles tendonitis in both Achilles heels. I went to the doctor and he said, you've got flat feet. That's why they don't let flat-footed people in the army. You shouldn't run. I suffered through the rest of the summer, and that was pretty much the end of my running career. Um, until my uh, maybe uh, early 40s, when I read Born to Run. A few times I'd try to go running. My knees would hurt, and my foot would hurt. And it always just kind of scared me. Some people had suggested orthotics would fix my problems. So I tried those, and they were really painful. Like running with rocks under your uh, arches. That just didn't work. But then I uh, read Born to Run and grabbed a pair of five fingers, and I ran around the block, maybe about a mile, and my knees actually didn't hurt. And I was just shocked, and I started, you know, just adding a little bit more distance and running every day with no preconceived notion of what fast was or what even running really was as a sport. And I think that's what enabled me to quickly uh, get in shape because a lot of times people get into minimalist running, it feels really good. They go out and do a 10 mile run and they destroy their calves. Right. Because those muscles aren't used to being used. This is very true. It really is. And if this show, as I hope, motivates you to at least experiment with doing away with your cushioned heels and going zero drop, meaning barefoot, sandals, vibrams, anything that's flat and close to the ground, please do so in stages. Go just a mile or two in zero drop and alternate with your regular footwear as you build up that mileage. You see a lot of sneakers, trainers, running shoes, whatever you want to call them, have heel drops of up to 9mm. And that's the extra amount your calf muscles will need to stretch out if you do away with that drop entirely. It takes the body time to transition into anything new, even if that something new is really the something old that we were born with. I was smiling because I took a bit of time to reread key sections of Born to Run yesterday, and you have just offered the absolute textbook summary of all the reasons 
people get told not to run, get injured <laughs> and don't run <laughs> because they're wearing these shoes, they get hurt, the doctor says, ah, you're flat-footed, you got this, you got that. And basically the doctors are kind of looking for excuses to tell you not to run when really all you need is to get out of those big, big shoes and find something that's actually going to be more natural for you. Is that... I mean, that's what I'm hearing, and that's what, that's what a lot of people had as a takeaway from, from this book that we've, we all talk about so much. Yeah, I think that's totally true. It, I mean, it worked really well for me. And again, I wasn't in shape enough. I was 40 pounds heavier, pretty out of shape, and I wasn't in shape enough to hurt myself. So I'd run a mile, and it would take me, you know, 14 minutes. Whoa! <laughs> You were, yeah, I think you did Manitou's in 14 minutes miles, probably. Probably. I think I was that. Right. But I'd go run in the woods behind my house, imagining I was uh, prancing through the Copper Canyons, not really caring about what pace or... that didn't seem slow to me because I wasn't able to run before anyway, so, you know, it was new. And Within 11 months, I ran my first marathon, which was probably a little bit too soon. It pretty much destroyed me for about six weeks. And then uh, I followed a more rigorous training program, and the next marathon was uh, an hour faster. Right. And then if I'm right, your third one, you qualified for Boston already. Yeah, I did, just, just by a hair. Qualifying for Boston, even if just by a hair, is no mean feat. Oh, sorry, that was a painful pun. Almost as painful as it would be to step on broken glass in your bare feet. Which, as you'll recall, has yet to happen to Bill. In fact, in a sport where the vast majority of participants have some kind of injury every year, Bill has remained almost abnormally pain-free. I've been at this for, I think, about 10 years now. And have not really been sidelined. Other than that first marathon... I was pretty beat up after that, just sore, nothing nothing damaged, but pretty sore. Yeah, the more I think about it, the more I realize that you are probably almost like a poster child for re- reading a book that a lot of people read and it changed, it inspired them and it maybe changed their running habits and for a lot of people that involved injuries because they changed their habits very quickly. And for you, you didn't have to suffer those injuries because you weren't really running. And uh, your list of achievements, you know, is impressive by anybody's standards. So, you know, you've run Boston. Just to qualify for Boston is major. And you qualified for Boston, was it running in the Vibrams or the Sandals or Barefoot? It was uh, Vibrams. Vibrams, okay. And uh, run Boston now five times. Fantastic. And, and as well as things like Manitou's, which is pretty fearsome around here, tell me about Leadville. Well, Leadville's really central to uh, the Born to Run book. Um, in that the Charamahara Indians were, came and ran Leadville. Um, I guess the first year they tried it, they, got, they went down there and just grabbed some of the uh, Charamahara and thought, all Tomahara can run 100 miles great. And they all ended up dropping out. 
And then they went back down and found some really good runners. And they came back the next year and won the race. And the guy that won it, I believe he was in his 50s when he won it, which is just astounding. It is. I'm imagining you or I doing something like that. <laughs> I'm in my 50s. Yeah, it took me 26 hours to finish it, plus some. Um, I think he did it in 17 or 18 hours. It's on 100 miles, but not just any old 100 miles. Yeah, Leadville's a, it's a really neat race, and it's got a great backstory to it. Um, this mining town in Colorado, Leadville, was basically... Uh, the mine closed, and everybody lost their job. It had the worst unemployment in the whole country. And the town sort of got together and tried to think of, what can we do to make money now? And one guy said, I know, we'll have a race up here. He goes, but it can't just be a marathon. We're going to make it a 100-mile race. Because if they run 100 miles, they're going to have to spend the night. <laughs> and spend some money. And spend some money. Well, they're going to have to run through the night. I'm sure that that was uh, factored in as well. But they're going to need some kind of hostel before and afterwards. Yeah, so it's going to bring people there and they're going to have to stay. And the local doctor, you're going to kill people. This whole town, your whole race is going to be above 10,000 feet. But they persisted. And now it's incredibly popular. Um, there's a, it runs out every year. There's a lottery system and a wait list. Um, and for a 100-mile race, I think there's usually about a 1,000 runners. So it's just a huge party. Yeah, and, and people do party back in town, is that correct? Yeah. Like, I mean, like in Boston, where while you're running, people are using Patriots Day to hit the bars very, very, very early, which I always find, like, enjoyable and somewhat incongruous at the same time. One of the aid stations is sponsored by the race, and they have uh, locals man it. And I guess they give them a budget, and they send them up there, and they have a big party. It's uh, on your way back. It's an out-and-back course. So you run 50 miles out, um, going over Hope Pass, which gets up to 12,500 feet, I think. You turn around and go over Hope Pass again. <laughs> well, you got to come back. And then you're going up uh, the Powerline Trail on the way back, and they have this aid station there that's just incredibly insane. Um, one of my pacers had run it the year before, and he, he said there was a, a guy there wearing a Stormtrooper helmet and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping not for that visual, and... I didn't get it, but they were, uh, they had all the marijuana you wanted to smoke. They had, oh my God. They had whiskey. They had they lots of uh, tempting things at the aid station. I did not partake in any of that, figuring I probably wouldn't finish. Um, that is a party. But it's a crazy party. There's, you know, lights all over the place, tiki bar feel to it, and just uh, everybody hooting and hollering. And it's just this really crazy, weird. Uh, Awesome uh, aid station. Were there other people doing it in sandals, in Aracha sandals, or bare, God forbid, barefoot? Was Barefoot Ted out there? Barefoot Ted was there in his Luna sandals. Yep. 
I've done it twice. The first year he did not finish because he was running with a, a friend who like, they tripped and sprained their wrist or something like that. And he walked them into the aid station and he missed a cutoff. Okay. Um, he was a little upset by that, but he bounced back. He's a pretty positive guy. The next year he did finish it in, in his Lunas. But I believe that year I was the only one to finish it in Lunas. As we explored the trails and got ourselves a little close to the main road and the traffic noise, Bill was at pains to emphasize that his story is an everyman's story, or at least an any man's story. And we've talked a lot about the big, huge challenges I've done, but I wouldn't say that I'm a particularly natural-born athlete. I think I'm a pretty average athlete. I mean, grade school, I was one of the, the slow kids always. It's about getting out there and doing it and just getting your body used to doing this stuff. And that's really what all of us are able to do. I mean, if you go back a few hundred years before all the modern conveniences, you look at, say, the Native Americans, all of them could cover 20, 30 miles in a day, no problem. Everybody, men, women, children. And we aren't, it's not like they had different bodies than we do. They just have different environments. We really, really have switched off from what we're capable of. And I'm really glad you said that because it's becoming the, uh, the sort of recurring mantra that I'm hearing from people. And it doesn't actually just have to apply to athletics, so it's helpful. Is yeah, you know, you've got to set yourself that goal. And we're capable of an enormous amount. And I think it's important you mentioned earlier, you were 40 pounds heavier when you started this. You were, what, just around 40, I think you said? When yeah, you got like 43, I think. Yeah, so you've got, had, got 10 years of this. So you are, again, as well as being a textbook example of being able to just start out in midlife with barefoot and minimalist running and not getting injured from the switch, you're also just a great example of somebody who was, you know, trundling along with life, carrying a bit of weight that they didn't need to be carrying, and discovered that they were capable of things that you probably could not have imagined five years before that, right? You even at 43, you couldn't have imagined running the Leadville, could you? No, no, it's not, I didn't even know people ran 100 miles. It's just insane. Yeah. <laughs> and I, if you time I, traveled back and told me I was going to do it, I'd say you're crazy. And I really want to, you know, that's that's my. That's my message, is to encourage people. It doesn't have to be... You know, you're not going to get into Leadville anyway if you set your goal on that. You know, that's not going to happen today. And there aren't the races. It's, it's about realising that you're capable. If you set yourself, you know, a goal that takes you outside that comfort zone, you're capable of doing things that you probably didn't know you could. And our body is capable of greatness. And, yeah, and I think just the, the freedom that it gives me, I mean... The ability to just, oh, hey, I'm going to go off and do 10 miles in the mountains and see beautiful sights and just have the confidence that I can just do that. Yeah. It's just amazing. I kind of think about the Southwest ad where they say, you are, you are now free to roam about the country before the pandemic locked down all the air travel. Yeah. But I feel like I'm now free to roam around trails and mountains. And yeah. And that you weren't previously. 
Because, no, yeah, I mean, you know, you weren't, you weren't on that level of fitness where you could do that. Yeah, even in my uh, 20s, I remember uh, hiking Giant Mountain, one of the high peaks in the Adirondacks. And it took us all day. I mean, it was like an eight-hour trek, and everybody was exhausted. It was just, you know, it seemed like a huge accomplishment. And now I can up and down Giant Mountain in two hours. Yeah. And, and run a big race the next day, you know. So it's sort of my... Uh, the difference in fitness is just astounding. I joke about when I was training for my first marathon uh, in New York City and I ran twice around Prospect Park, which was all of 10K. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I am a champion. You know, I was like, I was like on, on uh, cloud nine for, for days. And now I look back at that. But I also realize those are really important steps to take. Every step's important. And that first time you go, you know, it's a hilly park and I was probably, I was always running too fast. So... You know, that was an achievement that day. It was important for me to do that, to be able to get to the marathon. So every achievement is an important one, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember I was on a business trip early on in this in uh, San Francisco. And I went out for a run in the morning in the Five Fingers. I was running along some path. And this older gentleman started running next to me and asked me about the Five Fingers and started talking to him and... uh, Turns out he had run Leadville twice, and I was just like, wow, this guy's just amazing. And I was talking to him, and we went up the Golden Gate Bridge, and just, and then I realized I was going to be late for work. I had to turn around and go back, and I think it ended up being like a seven-mile run, and it was just huge for me. I was like, wow, that was an amazing. I went seven miles and made it back to work in time, and, you know, now seven miles is just sort of, yeah, warm just up. Well, warm it's up whatever order. it is, and, and you've run Leadville twice. Also. Yeah, I know, and it's yeah. just, yeah. So yeah. this, this guy, uh. I still friends with him on Facebook. It's uh, Gasper. He's an Italian guy, and he, he doesn't run much anymore. But he uh, does like these road hikes where he'll, him and his wife will go like thirty miles, and they will like you know take pictures at restaurants and things like that, and just his spend like you know twenty hours just going 30, 40 miles just walking. Inspiring stories, self-evidently, are everywhere. You can view Bill Hoffman's 2013 TED Talk from Couch to Ultra Marathon by searching as much on YouTube. You can read about his experience running the Leadville 100 in his sandals on the Lunar Company's blog. And in the August issue of the Adirondack Sports Magazine, free online, you can read about his crazy and novel adventure this summer, in which he and two friends completed the Lake George 12-ster, which involved 56 miles running the 12 peaks but without use of a vehicle to connect the dots. They achieved this by swimming over a mile across the lake itself in the middle. This particular endeavour, three years in the planning, inspired Bill and one of his compatriots, Tim Eller, to start a new company, Mountain Dog Running, which plans to be putting on trail races in the capital region, i.e. between the Catskills and the Adirondacks, as soon as this November. Visit Mountain Dog Running on Facebook, And of course, I'll put up all these links in the show notes. As for the Lunar Sandals, I expect you'll see me in them as well in the very, very near future. Perhaps even when I run the Cat's Tail Trail Marathon at the start of October. It's the only one of the three Catskills trail races, the long ones, to have survived the COVID year. 
and it's been limited to a field of 50. I was thrilled to have gained entry by lottery. Regardless, I expect to be reporting from it. And in the meantime, I've got more of those long distance interviews lined up for you. They're not all about running, I assure you. Some of them are even about walking. I'm going to end by taking a minute to supply some updates on the people I've talked to over the course of this show. Especially because Covid has so completely altered our existence in 2020. After the initial four-part documentary on last year's climb of Mount Kilimanjaro, then in episode 5 I talked with Henry Stedman, a tour operator and author, about the situation on the ground in Tanzania. Although the government there has been less than transparent about its Covid infection rates and deaths, international travel has resumed and packages are available both to climb the mountains and to go on safari. Stedman regularly updates followers of his Climb Kilimanjaro portal with the newest information available, including a Facebook live video talk with all the latest news that should be archived on the company's Facebook page, of course, by the time you hear this. Separately, I have heard from people I know in the Arusha region there that infection rates are low, but that the area is deathly quiet, suffering from lack of tourism. The Tanzanians are nonetheless better off than the Peruvians, which we featured briefly in episode 6. That country is closed to international travel until December at the earliest, and while the Cusco region around Machu Picchu has been spared the worst of Covid, Peru in general has one of the highest infection and death rates in the world. My friend Rick Dragon, who's moved to Peru's neighbour in Colombia, and his subsequent establishment of an art school there outside of Bogota, I profiled in episode 7, reports that while lockdown has finally ended after several months, cases have not decreased. And so, while one by one the international residents who've taken refuge there have left for their home countries, Rick continues to lay low at Ardesumapaz. The Kenyan performance shoe company Ender, Africa's first, and featured in episode 8, continues to do the good work that befits a company officially designated climate neutral and a B Corp. I've been wearing their handmade masks and enjoying their newsletters that report on running activities from around the world. Covid fortunately appears to have spared their Kenyan factory thus far and shoes continue to be manufactured and shipped. While classes have resumed at Norwich University in Vermont, where Manu Shrestha the Nepali subject of episode 9 has made a success of herself and brought pride to House with Heart, in which she was raised back in Kathmandu. The situation in her homeland remains grim. Lockdown there has been long. It was gradually eased this summer, and then, just as international flights were meant to resume, the country locked down again. Nepal has minimal healthcare facilities to deal with a major outbreak and House with Heart continues to raise its children behind closed doors. Paula Lucas, who was featured in episode 5 talking about the From Couch to 5K program, bookended her summer with not 5K but now 10K runs. She has taken up hiking as well, and reports that the blood work she was looking forward to, conducted a couple of months back now, showed massive improvements in her cholesterol level and her blood sugar level. She credits this health improvement to her vegan diet just as much as to the running and other exercise. 
Carla Rhodes from episode 6 continues to practice her wildlife photography from her backyard now in the Catskill Mountains while waiting for greater travel opportunities and for her photographs of the endangered greater adjutant from her barely pre-COVID trip to Assam in India to be published shortly. And finally, while Peter Naylor, subject of episode 10 for his two unsupported late-life Spartathlon runs, has no new adventures of his own to report, the spirit clearly runs in his family. In February, his son Ben was forced to cut short a bicycle ride all the way up South America because of COVID and returned to live with his parents in my birth town of Beverly, Yorkshire. But when lockdown was eased in the UK, he surprised his girlfriend in London for a birthday by cycling the entire 215-mile distance in under one day. According to Peter, a bunch of Ben's friends took the attitude, why would you do that? As Peter counted, why wouldn't you? This episode of One Step Beyond was written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music in this episode was revealed in this nature by Noel Fletcher. The theme song One Step Beyond is by Madness, used with their permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. You can reach out to us at onestepbeyond at ijamming.net I-J-A-M-M-I-N-G.net. You can also find us on all social media. Just search One Step Beyond Podcast. And our website is buried over at acast.com. All these links will be supplied in the show notes. And if you are listening online, please know that you can subscribe and download on just about every podcast platform known to man. It's always great if you want to leave a positive review. And it's especially great if you want to reach out. Whatever you're doing in the world, peace. Peace.